Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hi, you're listening to Chronically Chilled on 3CR. My name is Mario Pojiga. Um, I just want to acknowledge the people of the Kulin Nation whose land I am recording from. On today's show, you're going to be hearing a conversation I had with Vanamali Hermans. Mali is a Wiradjuri, Irish and Flemish woman living on Nunawal and Numbri land. She's a disabled organiser and a writer and has had work published in Overland, The Guardian and New Matilda and has appeared on podcasts such as Living the Dream and Movement Memos with Kelly Hayes, amongst others. Marley is a board member of Women with Disabilities ACT and currently works in gender-based violence policy alongside studying a Master's of Social Work. Before we get into the conversation, I just want to apologise um, for the audio quality. Um, we're still kind of recording from home, um, remotely away from the studio, so apologies if... Um, the audio isn't great, but I hope it doesn't get into in the way of um, listening to the conversation, um, which we'll go to now. All right, Marley, thank you so much. Thanks. I'm keen to be here and chat to you today, Mario. Cool. Um, so we're in the middle of a pandemic. Um, yeah. And at the same time as a pandemic, um, you know, all these Black Lives Matter protests have been happening in the States and in Australia. Um, mm. So there's lots going on at the moment. I guess my first question to you is, like, how are you going? <laughs> <laughs> how am I going? <laughs> Thanks. Um, that's a bit of a hard question to ask because I feel like for a lot of uh, people, especially thinking of black people, thinking of mob here, thinking of disabled people, thinking of anyone who's on, I guess, like the front line of not only the pandemic, but also this very big political uprising, like, you know, honestly, like, not well. Like, yeah, it's a really tiring time for a lot of people. Um, I think I feel very lucky I did not lose my job during COVID and I've been able to work from home. So there have been some silver linings for me and that's kind of made work a lot more bearable, um, bearable sorry, with chronic illness. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, just tired, hey. <laughs> it's a lot. Um, and I think, too, I... I recently had my mum pass away, like maybe around eight months ago. And so COVID and the pandemic has really stuffed up my like grieving timeline. You know what I mean? It's not a normal trajectory. Um, so that's been pretty tough. But yeah, feeling feeling pretty lucky to be healthy right now. Yeah. I'm really as healthy sorry. as I can be. Yeah, I'm really sorry to hear about your mum. Thank you. Yeah. Um, What's helping you kind of get through this time? Because I think we've all been kind of trying to deal with it as best as we can mm. and stuff. What's been helping mm. you? Um, writing a lot. Like, mm-hmm. um, been writing heaps, although a lot of it is stuff that I will probably never publish ever, but definitely writing, um, journaling as well. Big fan of journaling. Um, and I think too, like just the amount of events now that I can tune into online like I went to Overland's launch last night and like normally, you know, 
feel like it's a different kind of culture now where a lot of events would stream their events, but it's just not the same as like everyone tuning in together online. So I think I've been doing a lot of that um, for a lot of social interactions. That's been nice. Um, And then also just getting outside and going on long walks has been very grounding and very good. Um, I was joking to a friend the other day, it kind of like, I feel like the bushfires felt like preparation for COVID because we were just Mm -hmm. stuck inside for five weeks when the air was too toxic to breathe. Um, So yeah, just just doing those little things to ground me, I think. Of course, because in Canberra, it was really bad, wasn't it, all the bushfires? It was pretty bad. Uh, A few days, we were the worst air quality in the world. Um, And, like, we had to to move our mattresses into our living room because that's the only place we have air conditioning. Um, And then we would duck a tape up the kind of, like, gaps in our doors and we'd put wet towels um, Mm. as if they were a house fire. But there wasn't a house fire. It was just, like, the smoke. You know, I'm a renter, so it just got in it's a very old house um so yeah it's pretty suffocating yeah Mm. and i have asthma as well so i was like oh Oh, gosh (laughs) yeah um yeah a lot of people have been commenting about like the accessibility of like having online events and stuff now Mm. being like a huge making a huge difference in people's lives what other things have you noticed that like you kind of want to hold on to like post pandemic i think like on a material level the $550 coronavirus <laughs> supplement first comes to mind. Definitely want to hold on to that. And I also want to extend it to the DSP and the carer's pension, like yeah. without a question. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like that is kind of a fight that, um, although it's part of the Keep the Rate campaign, has kind of been left behind a little bit. Um, and I think a lot of like mainstream economic justice activists haven't really grasped like how expensive it is to be disabled during a pandemic, like, you know, it's groceries delivered, getting medications delivered, um, changing, like I've had to change my medications during COVID. Yeah. Um, So definitely the supplement. Um, Telehealth, also amazing. Love that. Um, But I think on a different level too, just like, I don't know, I feel like socially um, we're kind of, I feel like I at least am living my life at a slower pace. I saw people tweeting the other day about crip time and I haven't ever really used the word or phrase crip time before, but I'm like, yes, that's what this is for me. Like, I feel like my body is getting to recover. Um, but at the same time, like slowing down a bit, I'm like, yeah. I've been going way too fast. And I didn't realize like just how bad it, like it was having an effect on my body. Yeah. Um, yeah so definitely want to keep that. But also, um, I think the one thing I would say is that I, I'm a bit hesitant to say that COVID has just been like all silver linings and that there are heaps of things you want to keep. Like, because I think about my dad, who's also disabled um, and like, he can't use the internet. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I feel like yeah. for older people and for people who maybe don't have access to the internet, like all these things that have opened up for us, actually are governed by a huge digital divide still and i think we really have to be like aware of that totally yeah my dad my dad um has got some like health issues as well and Mm. they organized a telehealth appointment for him and he can barely speak english so telehealth has been awesome for me um before my dad like he's not going to get anything out of it exactly Um, why the doctors even organized that i have no idea 
and you're just like, you know, for some people, yeah. for some people, this stuff has been really good and for other people it hasn't. Yeah. And I think, yeah, yeah. And I think yeah. it's easy. It's easy because you don't actually hear from those people very often around. Exactly. Yeah. Because like how, what, what is, you know, the entryway into mainstream discourse, they're not going to be tweeting about their shit experiences on Twitter. <laughs> they don't use Twitter. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, exactly. yeah. I think it's up to us not to forget them as well. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, let's talk abolition stuff. Yes, <laughs> um, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, what's emerged from um, the Black Lives Matter movements um, is like a real surge in like, like abolitionist politics and conversations mm. about what that would look like. Mm. I never, like, I never thought that we would get to this point so quickly, I guess. I, I don't know what no, other No, neither did think. I. Yeah. Um, no, yeah. Um, but intersecting with this is uh, also like incredibly high levels of incarceration and um, institutionalization faced by people with disabilities. Um, mm. Can you talk more about it? Yeah, for sure. Um, first I'd preface and say like, yeah, I never thought it would be in my lifetime that like abolitionist politics would actually be like, you know, this like critical moment where it's actually mm -hmm. a global discussion. Like that is just beyond me and I feel really lucky to be watching everything unfold um and yeah i think i've been interested in abolition for a couple of years and obviously that stemmed from like classics like our prisons obsolete by angela davis mm. um and i didn't really incorporate that disability justice lens until um my own family's experiences with institutionalization so um following a, a suite of different hospital stays my mum her only option was to live in a group home um, from around early 2018 up until her death. And yeah, I'd, I didn't understand what group homes were, um, but it was, she was um, a quadriplegic and she had a level of needs that just the NDIS was not willing to fund in her own house. Um, and so, yeah, she was locked away in a group home with four other women with disabilities and it was an institution the way it was run like you know run to a set schedule it was not a home in the way that you would you know consider a home you're constantly being the only word i can say is like policed and like your different behaviors and things like that um and that was when i was like shit like she's been separated from the community and she's never going to be allowed back into the community because of her disabilities um and so i think yeah, that was when I kind of grew my idea of abolition to not only prisons, but like what actually are carceral institutions. So like, how do we disappear people and how do we lock people away in prisons, of course, but in group homes and even like looking at nursing homes, for instance. And I think um, I saw a tweet yesterday or the day before, and it was just so beautifully put, it was so succinct. It was like, abolition is care. Um, and mm. to me, I'm like, that is at the root of abolitionist politics to me. It's like transforming not only justice, so investing in transformative justice, but also transforming the way that we care for one another so that we don't have to rely on institutions like group homes. We don't have to rely on nursing homes and, you know, lock older folks away. Um, I think that's incredibly important. Um, and yeah, like even thinking of the pandemic, like, what is it? It's up to... 45% or so of people in the US who have died as a result of COVID have been people in nursing homes. Mm. That's not only older folks, but 
disabled folks have been institutionalised there too. Mm. Um, and, like, the amount of people in our prisons now who have disabilities, it's, like, up to half, <laughs> half of everyone. Um, it's the same, like, even looking at police brutality, like, the amount of people killed by police uh, is, like, up to 50% of people. And I think, you know, that's an intersection that we have to always be very mm. mindful of. And especially, like... I think in the disability rights movement, it can be very wide and people often forget about, you know, black and indigenous experiences of disability as well. And how things like mental illness or what people might call psychosocial disability, like, you know, that's read very differently if you're a black person. Um, And that can lead to, you know, your institutionalization or death if you're angry about being fucking oppressed. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think this is, like, such an exciting time um, and I am so here for all the different discussions about care and what community might look like for people who have been shut away from the community for so long. Mm. Um, I think what's going to make, what makes this really hard is Australia loves to, like, lock people up and it loves the police. And I think, yes. like, I, th- I think we've all been trained in some ways to be deputies as well and to police each other. And mm. I think it's also another it's a, also another layer to all of this. Um, we're mm. very quick to kind of dub each other in and, you know, I'm thinking also about mm. homeless people. Um, we're very yeah. quick to kind of just call the cops on homeless people, for example, rather than mm. kind of looking at the larger structural kind of disadvantage and oppression that they face as well. Yeah, you know? So exactly. I think there's lots of different communities and lots of different groups that I think we need to kind of include in all this um, yeah, as well. Sure. I think first and foremost... Um, it necessitates a lot of our work being led by people who have experienced incarceration, who've experienced institutionalization, who have experienced homelessness, for instance, because yeah, like frankly, like <laughs> I don't think people understand the the psychological effect that being disappeared or being locked away has unless yeah, you've lived it. So I think that that is like a a really important aspect to the conversation um and yeah like just on a root level i think i don't think we can talk about abolitionist politics in australia without talking about colonialism without talking about like what is the history of prisons Mm. you know what what why do we use prisons in australia like this was a fucking penal (laughs) colony you know when it was invaded to start off with and Mm. it's yeah, it's hard to see it because it, ever since 1788, it has literally been the purpose of this place, of this settlement, has been to imprison people. Um, and I think until that that is actually grappled with, like, you know, what's the point? You can't. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's definitely the first, yeah, the first, yeah. The first point, yeah. Um, and... Uh, I guess it's what's been, um, I was kind of comparing kind of what's happening in the US compared to what's been happening in Australia. Mm. And I think the US has stayed really, really focused in terms of mm. this, is about, this is about black people being killed by the police and this is about mm. um, ending kind of defunding police or abolishing mm. police or and all that stuff. And I feel like the conversation in Australia has already been diverted. Like it went mm. from about Aboriginal deaths in custody, which it, this is kind of where it's all about. And it's been diverted into pop culture and statues and stuff. And I think the mm. government, with the help of the media, has really kind of done that. 
I think mm. kind of done a really good sneakily job of kind of diverting the yeah. yeah, they've diverted the conversation kind of already. Yeah. So I guess it's like, and this is a hard question as well, but like, how do we mm. kind of stay focused and kind of, you know, how are you so not focused? get diverted? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think I would say that like um, organizers of black deaths in custody rallies have stayed focused. Like, mm. you know, we've been doing this shit for fucking years. Um, and I think, it's up to people who suddenly have seen this political moment in the US and they've recognised it in the Australian context, but making sure that it's not just like a one-off thing for people. Like it's like in the US, I think people are realising like as an ally or as whatever, as an organiser or someone who's invested in transformative justice, I need to commit, you know, my time, my organising, my resources to this cause. And I still think that that is something that's very far off for a lot of people in Australia. Mm. Um, and I see a lot of people commenting, and I agree to a large extent, that they can empathise with the struggles of black people in the US and not empathise with, you know, our struggles, mob struggles here in Australia. Um, and how to change that. Like, I see so many amazing deadly mob on Twitter and in my life doing such staunch, amazing work. People keep going on, but it's like, there's only so much you can do to turn, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like it's up to the rest of us. Yeah. Literally. Yeah. Yeah. And yes. Steering the conversation back to that's such a hard question. Like I just, the Australian media, like I just, yeah. (laughs) Like it's a beast. (laughs) that just cannot like how the fuck does Pauline Hanson still have like a regular channel seven slot? Like I just like, yeah. Yeah, it's been so normalised, like, and that's what I yeah. said before, we've normalised locking people up and that's how I'm sick yeah. as well, you know, yeah. um, with, like, huge support from, yeah. like, the population and I think, yeah. like, that whole thing about how we treat disabled people as well, like, that's also been so normalised. Totally. Yeah, so totally. Um, when we're yeah. talking about abolition, what do you think it could look like um, from a disability justice perspective? From a disability justice perspective, I think coming back to that conversation around care, I think it mm. definitely looks like completely transforming the way that we care for each other. And also, like, how do we even talk about disability? Like, obviously, the social model of disability is what policymakers use, right? Yeah. I, I don't think that's true from my own experience of disability, from my family's experiences of disability. It is just medicalising people and problematizing people and you know pushing this narrative that people are a fucking burden and that you know they need to be managed in some way um and i think like programs like the ndis that is supposed to be about empowerment choice and control are not actually about those things and similarly push those narratives onto people that like you were a problem you need to be managed Mm. and shit like that um and so, like, actually bringing in abolitionist perspectives to that just seems so far off to me. Um, but how do we do it? I think conversations around care and I think, too, some of the mutual aid we've been seeing mm. are really, really, really good at examples, like, not only during COVID but during the bushfires, too, because it shows that as a community, you know, we can, we can sustain each other we can distribute resources amongst each other and we can ensure people's needs are met without Mm. making them feel like a burden. You know what I mean? Like we can be like, Hey, 
do you to my neighbor next door do you need a puffer i've got a spare puffer here's a puffer for you um and i think those are like some of the very elemental first steps that we're seeing and that can lead us down that pathway yeah um it's really it's really you talked you've already talked about the concept of care a few times Mm. um and when i was preparing for this i've actually got care written as something that Mm. i kind of think is also really important and how do we kind Mm. of encourage it and it was really Mm. interesting like during this whole COVID thing I feel like we had when this you know COVID initially kind of got Mm. you know was became a thing in Australia and stuff Mm. there was initially this kind of I felt this there was a real care for each other in the community and how do we look out for each other and all this kind of stuff Mm. and I felt like that lasted a few weeks maybe (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and yeah. then we all we all just went back to our individual lives and everybody's kind of yeah. you know, not even social distancing anymore and it's all become about rules and all that yeah. kind of stuff. So it's and kind then, of yeah, a fleeting, fleeting thing that we actually, it's, yeah. we, we have a real time, hard time yeah. hanging on to, you know. Yeah. I think that's a really good point. Like I, I can see distinct stages in like everyone realising we're in a global pandemic, like we're in this shared crisis mm. and then it kind of like disintegrating into people panic buying into like this mindset of I have to preserve me and my family and that's it. Like I have to, you know, keep myself safe. And then you raised a really good point, which I totally agree with. It's just like we suddenly lurched into this horrible discourse of let's police each other. Let's introduce, you know, restrictions that weren't actually like, I'm not advocating against a lot of the restrictions that we're seeing, but the way that they've been framed you know, it's like you're either good or bad if you're following the restrictions, rather actually acknowledging, like, why are we doing what we're doing in the first place? Like, why are we social distancing? It's because there are people in our community who are immunocompromised. It's because, you know, we're connected and we actually have to hold each other accountable to one another mm. and protect each other, you know, in this broader ecosystem. And I think that that has totally been thrown out the door. Yeah. And it's rather about... Uh, you're not wearing a mask, therefore you're a shit person and I'm going to dob you in or, you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Which is, I think, why it's just like, like I was talking about things being normalised before. I mm. think that's why, like, when you when you see people react in Australia to the concept or the idea of abolition, it's kind of one mm. of complete shock and they just like, uh, what does yeah. that even mean? How do we, that does not make it even any yeah. sense to me. And I'm not even talking about kind of people who are, would be against it anyway. I'm talking about people who mm. might be curious about it, but it, they, even they find it really hard to kind of imagine what that might look like. Yeah, it's hard to conceptualise it when literally mm. like, like think of like, you know, the, the stages of life, like when you get old, you get put into an old folks home. If you get... Mm disabled or if you for want of a better word if you get crippled you're going to go to an institution if you're bad if you break society's rules you're going to go to an institution mm. like that's that's literally i remember there was a great q a panel with neo kagori on it a couple of years ago i think maybe it was the panel where people were talking about burning shit down i can't remember properly not the one that got not the one that got banned yeah i don't think so but there was a great quote and it was like it's literally how Australia deals with problems. Like we don't know any different. This yeah. country does not know any different apart from locking people up. Totally. So I think like, you know, even for people who would consider themselves leftists, it's such a foreign idea. Absolutely. Um, and you talked before about um, what we're going to need in this is for people mm. 
from their, you know, this lived experience and from community to lead this kind of process. Um, but I think there's a real myth around all that stuff as well around consultation and I think there's mm. a lot of bullshit consultation that happens and I think there's a lot, a lot of bullshit kind of inclusion kind of stuff that happens um, yeah and you know when we're talking consultation or when we're talking that mm. kind of stuff we're really talking about process but process yeah. without power is just more systemic abuse Does I that, totally agree you know? um me and a friend we I, I think metaphors a lot. I find it really easy to visualise. And we came yeah. up with a really nice metaphor for this process. And it's like, you know, a lot of people talk about having a seat at the table or a seat at the dinner table or whatever. I mm. feel like a lot of the time what actually passes at a seat at the dinner table is everyone having a really lovely meal. And the next day they show up at your door with some leftovers and they're like, here, we included you. That. See, you get, yeah, literally, <laughs> if that. Yeah. But I feel like, yeah, I totally agree. I think consultation's bullshit. And I think... Yeah, I want to. I want to see abolitionist politics, and I want to see politics in this country that is rooted in self determination, mm. and for mob is rooted in sovereignty. You know, like yeah. And in in that I, process, someone has to give up power. I think. Yeah, and, and I think too. Yeah. This is a a great conversation to have in the disability community because mm-hmm. I, along with a lot of other disabled people, fucking hate the fact that a lot of conversations about disability in this country are led by disability service providers as if service providers or the people who Mm. provide us often subpar care or are the people who are you know policing us in these institutions are the people who get to speak on disability yeah and it's like i feel like in australia when people you know see disability they're like oh cool life without barriers you know like they can speak on disability. you know what i mean it's like well i think i think part of the problem (laughs) i think part of the problem is like a lot of these services um, and also the government as well has seen the solution to um, disability around, it's all individually based. So yeah. in, the, in, yeah. in the NDIS, it all sounds great. We're going to give yeah. um, choice to yeah. individuals and choice around mm. to people around making decisions about their lives and stuff. But there's actually mm. no collective um, element in yeah. the NDIS, which actually makes it hard for people to actually come together and to organise yeah. around it. Does that yeah. So yeah, there's actually not many places at all to actually for disabled mm. people to come together and yeah. have these conversations yeah. and to organise and to have different ideas and to kind of start yeah. to tackle some of these organisations that are really problematic. Yeah. I agree. And, like, just on a tangent, I'm even thinking of, like, the Disability Royal Commission. Like, I remember mm. one of the first days, one of the first hearings, I'm pretty sure it was on education, and, like, no people with experience in what I would call segregated education settings got to speak or testify. It was all the teachers and the principals and the teachers mm-hmm. unions who were responsible for these things in the first place. And it's just yeah. like, yeah, yeah, you know, but people would see the disability Royal commission and be like, great. Same with people are being heard. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, yeah, that's one of my pet peeves is that consultation is not the same as self-determination. I think. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah that's really well said. Yeah. So you've already talked about um, mutual aid. So I, I think that's one of the things also that's come out of COVID-19 is there's been a big rise in kind of mutual aid um, organising. Um, and it yep. suggests there's really a failure of services um, mm. kind of yep. to respond to especially marginalised communities. And I'm thinking mm. also disabled people who, you know, a lot of people are still um, isolating and stuff. 
So can you explain a little bit more about mutual aid and kind of a little bit more about your experiences? Hmm. Yeah, so I think um, that is a good way of putting it. Mutual aid is when the state does fail to provide, you know, material resources for people. Um, but I've recently been having conversations with friends and other disabled activists, and I like their way of framing it too. It's like, well, you know, mutual aid might be the phrase we call it now that's in, but really we've kind of been doing this for a very long time and it's how our communities have survived. Like we wouldn't always necessarily call it mutual aid, but it's like sharing resources with one another, you know, um, and making sure that if you know someone doesn't have access to something and you do have access to it, opening that up um, and it comes back again. Like I don't want to keep saying this word, but a different way of care where, you know, you realise it's within my power to help this person. If I have this resource, I'm going to share it. I'm going to be very cognizant of their needs and be cognizant that their needs probably are not going to be met by the state. Mm. Um, so, yeah, my experiences of mutual aid, at least in the past year or so, have been rooted very much in the bushfire crisis. So, as we kind of explored before, Canberra, Toxic air wasn't very livable. People needed P2 masks to filter out um, some of the toxic smoke. Otherwise, it was not going to be safe for people to breathe. Um, and the ACT government, so they didn't really start distributing masks for a couple of weeks. Um, and I was coming back from Brisbane. I was on holiday. And I kind of, I was like, I'm going to buy a mask for myself when I get back because apparently all the stores are out. And I was like, I'm going to ask my friends and family if they need masks. And then I was like, maybe I'll also post in camera notice board and I'll be like, you know, are there any disabled or immunocompromised people or people with young children with asthma that might need a mask? I can bring back a few. And then like 400 comments later, I'm like, Oh my gosh. Oh, wow. That's a bit <laughs> like, too much. Like how much everyone... I have to choose now? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Literally. So I was like, all right, we'll try and get them all. Um, and so me and some friends in Brisbane, we kind of were like, can people donate suitcases for us? Um, can people go to Bunnings, donate masks? And we, I brought home like around 600, 700 masks. We got jet started, um, mm. give us free baggage for it, which was great. Um, and then I got home and that afternoon I posted on my Facebook. I was like, if you want to come help me distribute them, come to my house at 2 PM and we'll do it. And then 50 people, like I would say around half I've never seen before in my life, show up in my living room. And yeah, we got masks out to people and we were doing mask runs for around a week or two before the ACT government actually stepped in um, and masks became available at chemists. But keeping in mind too, there was never, even during that time, there was never any kind of service for like people with disabilities, you know, mm -hmm. who maybe couldn't get to the local chemist or didn't want to get to their local chemist. Um, so that was like my big involvement with mutual aid this year. And then COVID hit and I think I was a bit sicker and I, I was very tired, <laughs> but like it had to exist on a smaller scale for me. So I gave puffers to my neighbor and I became her Centrelink nominee. So she didn't have to always drive and report her income. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think I found it like um, very heartening. I feel like I had been very politically cynical and depressed for maybe like a year or so before that. Mm -hmm. Um and so to see like just the relationships that were formed with community, yeah. it was like absolutely amazing. And like even little things, this is like 
one of my best experiences during it was we went to deliver a mask to a disabled woman and she had a child who was also disabled. We're delivering the mask and then she's like, oh, hey, I actually don't have food in my fridge either. So we're like, oh, okay, well, we can get that too. And you know what I mean? Like by starting those connections, people actually were like, oh, thank you for meeting this need, but I have this other thing too that I need help with. And like I think it kind of opened up discussion where people felt more freely to be like, I need shit. <laughs> Please help me. Like, yeah. and it was not in a, um, a like, you know, very toxic charity. Like I need a food voucher from Salvation mm-hmm. Army. It was like in solidarity, you know, can you help me get some food? Yeah. Um, so I think that was, yeah, that was really important. That was great. Yeah. I, I, I think the answer is probably yes to this, but do you think that kind of that can continue? Um, not just during kind of crisis, but kind of ongoingly. And, um, you know, we were talking before about kind of not having a lot of spaces for disabled people to come together, but I wonder Mm. whether that's something that, you know, we can come together on in some ways. Mm. I think so. I think it can continue. Like I, I think too, like often the hardest bit in mobilizing is actually like forming those first few connections and like assessing people's needs. But I, um, one thing that I noticed, like we had the bushfires first in Canberra and then a month or two later we have COVID and it was like, well, because of the bushfires, we already have knowledge of where a lot of the disabled people in our community live. We already have knowledge of like X person can't get to the shop. So X person needs this. Mm-hmm. So like, I think we are more aware of our neighbours and our community's needs. And so, you know, going into the future when those needs need to be met, we're aware of them and we know them. And I think before then, I agree with you. We were very individualized. It was like, mm-hmm. I wouldn't be able to tell you, you know, the person across the road from your name or like if they have a small child with asthma or whatever. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and I think that is really important for disabled people in particular. And I think too, like, you know, in some of the disabled Facebook groups, I mean, in the Canberra region, like I can already see it happening. I can already see like connections that have been made through this crisis, like withstanding. Um, yeah. so that's really special what I love about it is it builds community and you know we were talking before about abolition um, mm. I think that's what it's going to take hey is to build community yeah 110% yeah mm. because like what you do if we don't have these policing institutions that are incredibly violent like <coughs> we, we need other networks to respond to instances in our community when people may need to be held accountable whatever and how do we do that well we do that with the strength of community. Totally. Um, some may say, I know we emailed back and forth about this, some may say it may take social workers. I was about <laughs> to just jump into that. I was, like, <laughs> I was literally waiting for you to finish your point and then I was going to jump into it. All right, let's get so, into it. Let's yeah. get into it. I'm so cynical about this. Um, I think uh, there's been a lot, I know, you're, I, I know you're studying social work and I've been in the community services sector for kind of a really long time now. Um, and I've grown more cynical as I've kind of been in it. Um, yeah. Um, but yeah, I was initially when, you know, all these things on Twitter came up about abolition, I was reading a lot of people kind of saying, we need more social workers, not police and all this stuff. Um, and I was just like, I don't think people are aware of how much harm social workers have caused. Um, talking yeah. about you know indigenous people for a start yeah. um but yeah. also a lot of other communities and um, marginalized people um there's been so much harm that's been caused by social workers um and also their organizations 
Um, and I just thought that's not the solution here. I think, I, no think it, I think it can be, but I think that it would mean a whole bunch of rethinking about how we do mm. kind of that kind of work, um, which is, mm. I've seen it become more corporatized. I've seen it become, mm. you know, there's no collaboration going on anymore. It's just all about money, you know, all this kind of stuff. Um, yeah. So I, I thought I'd ask you kind of as a social work student or someone who's thinking about kind of getting into yeah. that kind of field, um, yeah, like what, where do, you, where do you sit with that and kind of do you see a role in that at all? Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, this is such a juicy question. I love it so much because um, I think still, like even amongst people who are being persuaded by abolitionist politics, and I'm so happy about that, but they are like, okay, cop's bad, social work is good then. Mm. Um, and that is just totally not my experience at all. Like I... I feel very lucky. Oh, I don't feel lucky. I think it's just by virtue of the different experiences and positionalities I've had in my life that I have had really negative experiences with social workers before coming to study social work. You know what I mean? Whether it be because of poverty, because of Aboriginality, because of disability, whatever, social workers to me have always been the kind of pacifying or mediating force and, um, I think a lot of critical social work theory is very pertinent in saying that social work literally helps people adjust to oppressive status quo. Like that is the, that is the role of social workers in the current Australian context. And in, I would say a large proportion of the global context as well. Um, and social work is like an arm of the state <laughs> in the same way, um, that I think a lot of the time the medical profession and doctors and nurses, like, they, they play a role in kind of pacifying you and um, individualising people's problems and not grasping the actual root structural causes that lead people to unjust situations. Like, for example, like, you know, you might see a single mother who's struggling to feed her children. There's no food in the fridge and a social worker might report her as negligent instead of being like, how can we get you food in the fridge? You know mm. what I mean? Um, which then activates the police, which then activates courts, which then activates exactly. prisons, exactly. which I, then activates a whole yep. bunch of other systems that have, have yep. come along with that. Yeah. yeah, and I think it's very naive to not realise how connected social work is as a profession to these other carceral arms of the state. Um, I, I think I do see a role for social work in decarceration processes because I don't think any serious abolitionist believes that we get to abolition overnight. Mm -hmm. um, and so I do see, I guess, basically like rooted in ideas of harm reduction. I do see social workers and the skills that social workers have um, being important. But at the end of the day, I, with a, many other radical social work comrades, believe that my profession should not exist. I yeah. do not, you know, in my perfect abolitionist world, there's not going to be any need for social workers. Um, and I think, I think particularly for social workers who come from marginalised communities, we are in a position where we can have access to this education and have access to... A, a skill set that um, I would say is still rooted in very capitalistic Western modes of thinking, but still we have a skill set that may help with counselling, that may help with, you know, 
allowing us to meet people's material needs and it's how do we take the skill set we learn in our education our profession and use that outside in the community that i think is really important yeah um, and i have a very dear beloved friend who lives in austin texas where i lived um for a portion of last year and she's a master's of social work student um and she you know she is an indigenous woman she feels the same about her social work education and mm. is disappointed in the ways that um you know different worldviews are not respected and how how it is violent for our communities but um during the uprisings and during some of the protests in austin she was like i'm going to use some of my social work skills Mm. and offer um, some consultations or free talk therapy for some of the students of color at our university who are going to the protests and i thought that was such an amazing opportunity for her to use some of the skills that she's learned from this social work education Mm. and put it to good use within the community and not have to rely upon you know the different organizations that we may be working for so in that respect i see that there is a role for people who study social work to play um but i don't think it is (laughs) the large majority of social workers who let's be real are middle class white women who uh have very big savior complexes and would not for an instance understand the way that they police um, and further disempower people. Yeah. And I think, I think some of that stuff is also reflected um, around how these organizations are structured. And I think Mm. the way um, funding is working now is being given to the bigger organizations. So Mm. in my experience, the people that the organizations that have done the best work have been small organizations um, yeah. And they're often the most diverse in terms of who kind of works there and all that kind of stuff. But these big organisations um, have become so corporatized. So what happens with that is these really rigid kind of systems and kind of processes and policies mm. and stuff get put in place as well. So it actually limits the role that people can do. Um, and yeah, for sure. Um, it actually, it actually, um, I think a lot of workers are actually struggling with that kind of ethically mm. around I actually don't like what I'm actually doing myself here and what my mm. my my kind of role is telling me to do, you know. So mm. I think there is some of that as well. Um, mm. What that leads to and all that stuff. But I have to say I do some teaching as well. Um, and I think the next generation of social workers and community workers, I've actually got a lot of hope for you guys because I think um, you're coming at it from a whole different point of view. Um, mm. much more about kind of lived experience, much more about a bit more looking at it more structurally rather than kind of just the individual and really challenging. We need to be challenging um, the mm. way that we've been operating. Um, mm. And you just have to look at it. Like the biggest ally of um, social work and social work organisations is the police. Yeah, that's Didn't such it? a good point. For every, point. For, every, for, every, for every program, for every kind of thing that we do, um, the answer is somehow always ends up being police. Police, policing, yeah. Yeah. And at the moment, there aren't a lot of other options, you know, when we're talking about kind of mm. family violence, things like that, it's going to call the police because we actually haven't built, and mm. I think that's a failure of us as a kind of sector, community workers and yeah. social workers, is we've actually failed to put something else in place there. I, I work in family violence. Um, mm. I work in gender-based violence policy and um that's just like the, it's the elephant in the room really um, and it's something that often makes me very uncomfortable at work is just like 
week after week, you know, I read articles in my work about this police officer disempowering this victim or this police officer being convicted of family violence. Um, And it just, like, there's a hesitancy to talk about it in family violence, I think, Mm. Um, because I think for a lot of people, again, it comes back to that idea they cannot conceptualise what a response to family violence might look like outside of policing, that to criticise policing or to question the role of policing just feels like such a disempowering experience because it's like, well, what do we have left to protect ourselves? Yeah, um, rather than actually looking at it as if, okay, that's the space we have to work towards. To fill, yeah, exactly. That, that's actually yep. our role and that's what our role should be, not to kind of wait yep. for some solution to yep. come out of somewhere else. Like that's... You know, yeah. if you look at the roots of kind of social work, community work, well, that's, mm. that is, a, it, it was about kind of, you know, activist politics and things like Dixon, that. Dixon, yeah. 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 I I think I have hopes um, just because of the, not even my own cohort, because I, I study masters online, so I don't really have a mm. strong sense of community, but with a lot of the other people my age or people I know from different organising spaces who also are studying social work and who are so staunch and just have like such brilliant ideas um, and all kind of come to the similar conclusion that after looking at abolition and after looking at what transformative justice means, it's like, shit, I don't think our profession should exist. (laughs) Like I think, you know, we should be working towards, yeah, a place where things are radically different. Absolutely. So I I do have hope, yeah. That was disabled organiser and writer Vanamali Hermans. Um, you can listen to all of Chronically Chilled's um, episodes via podcast, um, which you can find at 3cr.org.au. Um, so if you search for Chronically Chilled on the site, you'll be able to find us there. Um, you can also follow us on iTunes as well, if you would like. Um, I just want to thank Marley again for coming onto the show and also thank you for listening. <laughs>